Hello and welcome to the ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of our continuing professional development programme. I'm Mark Hansford, Director of Engineering Knowledge at the ICE. And I'm Alex Wynn, ICE's Knowledge Content Director. We're here today at the ICE Coasts, Marine Structures and Breakwaters 2023 event in Portsmouth, where attendees from around the world are learning about, sharing and exploring best practice to make assets more adaptable and resilient to the climate emergency facing our world and its infrastructure. The challenges posed by climate change are acutely impacting coastal communities, so where better place to be discussing them? Our guests today will be sharing some of the principles that they believe engineers should be adopting when approaching adaptation, resilience and decarbonisation in their designs and why it's important to them. So, let me first welcome David Porter, IC Vice President for Learning Society, who, in his day job, is with the Northern Ireland Department for Infrastructure, and Lewis Barlow, Co-Chair of the IC's Decarbonisation Community Advisory Board, who, in his day job, is Technical Director at WSP. And let me introduce Fiona Barber, Co-Chair of our Sustainable Resilient Infrastructure Community Advisory Board, who in her day job is Business Development Manager at Mott McDonald and from the same Community Advisory Board, Savina Carluccio, who in her day job is Executive Director of the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure. A fabulous panel, I'm sure you'll all agree. But let's first start uh, with David and Lewis and some principles around decarbonisation. I think perhaps the place to start is reflecting back to the IC State of the Nation report from 2021, which was very much focused around exploring the six things that engineers can do, must do, to act on climate change. And it feels that that call remains as relevant now as it was then, does it not, David? I think it absolutely does. Uh, and the one that stands out to me is the uh, it's an emergency and treat it as such. Uh, and that was really a, a challenge to the industry or a call to the arms to the industry that we actually need to recognise that uh, there's a, a real emergency and that we have a part to play in, in uh, adapting and changing our infrastructure to make it more resilient. Uh, and so the challenge was there. Uh, I suspect that the question is really have we have arisen to that challenge? Have we addressed that? Have we, have we taken that on board to the extent that we really should? Uh, because there's a, there is a, a, a changing climate out there. There's a world that needs our help as, as engineers. Uh, and, and we do need to really focus on that and, and rise to that challenge. Um, in your role now as our Vice President for Learning Society, if you were to ask our members to do one or two things, in particularly around decarbonisation, what would you like to tell them? I, I think the first thing is that we need to be very carbon conscious. Uh, you know, there is a shift in, in the way that uh, we used to assess and design and implement our projects. And in order to uh, minimise the impact on the environment, we have changed that. Uh, and now the focus is changing from just generally environmental impact to specifically about carbon and, and carbon outputs. So we need to adapt our processes. Um, and in order to do that, we need to focus in on carbon. We need to know the carbon uh, that is going to be embedded within our projects. We need to know the, the carbon that's going to be emitted as a result of the use of our, our projects. Uh, and by counting that, uh, 
we enable that to be taken in as part of the, the decision-making process as to which projects actually are viable and which are going to be good for the planet and for society to address some of the issues, but in a, a very carbon-conscious way. I mean, that's the perfect segue over to talk to you, Lewis, about we now have PAS 2080, the 2023 update. Um, this is the critical enabler, enabler of that, is it not? Yes, uh, PAS 2080 was recently updated, as you say, just about a month ago. Uh, originally, it came out in 2016. I mean, really, the, the fundamental principles of PAS 2080 haven't changed. It's always been about trying to understand the numbers, whole life carbon estimation from the earliest stage and setting reduction targets and proactively managing it. So it's been around for a while, but there's a, there's a lot of reasons why it's, it's, it's imperative that we use PAS 2080 to minimise whole life carbon in infrastructure more widely. And I guess that sense of the emergency that we've referenced again, it's that update now, it's really, I guess, trying to make more tangible to people what it is they can do, reinforcing that state of the nation message from a year or two ago. Yeah, well, a lot of what we've been doing over the last five, ten years in this space, let's face it, it's been voluntary. You know, it's been proactive people sort of pushing the envelope and trying to minimize carbon in all sorts of ways that they really haven't been told to do. But that's what's changing now. So PAS 2080 is going to be the, the mechanism by which everyone will have to do it. But people will have to do it. We're, we're seeing it being mandated from all sorts of ways, all sorts of different directions. And I'm certainly individually and, and, and as part of the ICE, really encouraging it to be mandated. So it's not just voluntary anymore, it's we do it. You know, carbon and climate, it's about the most important environmental issue that we have in our generation and generations to come. And yet there are no real rules and standards around it. Everything else has rules and standards, noise, air quality, contaminated land, not carbon yet, but it's coming very, very soon. Um, and on that, I mean, yes, it, it's it is great. We have seen um, the the UK Department for Transport is 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 asking all its arms length bodies to to mandate past twenty eighty, aren't we? Are, are we beginning to see other um, infrastructure owner operator clients in the UK and and potentially elsewhere taking that same approach? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, well, I know from personal experience with the Scottish government that's uh, the past twenty eighty. We're mandating it through the city and regional growth deals. So that's a five billion pound capital investment program that uh, you know, we have to follow, or all the project owners have to follow PAS 2080. And the real perfect combination, I reckon, is the combination of PAS 2080 and the Green Book. So if you're, if you're combining whole life carbon estimation and management through PAS 2080 and the Green Book, which sets an economic value against carbon, which is currently 252 pounds a tonne, then you start to really make some good decisions based on, on carbon uh, at, a, at a detailed level and, and at a project level, a system level. One of the current blockers let's say to to people truly embracing the measurement and and, and quantification of carbon is, as, as david has talked to being bank so crucial is having a con consistent set of data to use now we you perhaps might like to touch on some proposals that are in, being developed to provide that but but certainly in the here and the now and in the meantime that shouldn't be a blocker should it what would a what would a one of our members do to actually get hold of some data they can use to inform their carbon calculations? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And ideally, uh, PAS 2080 update would have been published and everyone knows we have to manage carbon and then they turn around and there are the numbers right in front of us. And we know exactly how to do it. But unfortunately, that's not 
perfect right at the moment, but it is still possible. It's possible to estimate the carbon associated with any piece of infrastructure at the moment. It's just a bit of a compromise. So all the energy-related carbon factors are published annually by the UK government, uh, the greenhouse gas conversion factors. Um, there's the inventory of carbon and energy from the University of Bath, which has a very comprehensive set of uh, embodied carbon data. Uh, and then there's, unfortunately, out-of-date CESM 4, Civil Engineering Standard Method of Measurement 4, published in 2013. Now, that's great because it's got a lot of activity-based data. So you can get the carbon for a particular given unit for digging a trench or laying a pipe or clearing a site and that sort of stuff. Uh, and this is something that, as you say, Mark, is a kind of proposal that's something we want to take forward within the ICE to update CESM so that then really there is no excuse. All the numbers will be at people's fingertips. But in, in short, you know, that, this is a really important message. It is possible right now to estimate carbon from the very earliest stage of a project. Rule of thumb, whenever you can estimate cost, you can estimate carbon. So we have to do it. But it will get easier. And that's a great, I suppose, interpreting that in the resilience and adaptation space for Savina and Fiona. I, I mean, I guess it's this this point about not waiting for perfect and doing something now. Um, um, Fiona, would you like to go first, just share your thoughts on what we as civil engineers need to be aware of? Yeah, I think um, there's lots of topics that um, kind of interweave. And I think um, we need to be um, looking at this in more of an integrated context. Um, and um, I know that um, in the topic of uncertainties, we identify, um, and, and Savina, I'll bring you into this, that there are uncertainties in so many different levels. Um, and whereas I, I am probably more focused on on flooding and, and the flood uncertainties of that, but when you look at the wider context of, of resilience and, and infrastructure, um, there's really so many different levels of that. Savina, would you want to expand on that? Yeah, I think it's uh, when I was, um, now I've been working in resilience for a few years. And um, one of the things I found most useful in terms of resilience is uh, helping with uncertainty. And that uncertainty, as, as you say, Fiona is on many different levels and is exacerbated by climate change. I mean, obviously, we don't really know um, really uh, what to expect other than that. Severe, it will be the weather events will be more severe, more frequent. But you know, there's uncertainty. We need to deal with this, and um, and, and there are ways to deal with uncertainty. Um, we, uh, as engineers, we can design for uncertainty. So there are different strategies. Um, let me start with one, for example. You can design uh, redundancy and diversity in infrastructure systems. So you can, for example, build a taller dike wall. Uh, than the worst case scenario for uh, flooding in, for climate projection, or you can have a backup generator so that you know if something goes wrong, you got like uh, something to fall back on. But all of this obviously has um, co cost and efficiency implications. And another way that we can manage this uncertainty is adaptation pathways. And I think um, there is. This is where we go about looking at different projection scenarios, and that could be emission scenarios, but it could also be different projections of what that might mean in terms of intensity of rainfall or frequency of wave events or, or whatever those different uncertainties are. And if we plot all of these different scenarios, we can then make a sort of strategy for each one so that if um, so it's it's almost like doing that early work 
many, many times. But the benefit of that is as we assess whether we're doing the right thing, where are we actually hitting um, that climate change? How is it impacting us? If it turns out to be different from the assumed scenario, we can just jump to the new strategy. It's already been thought through. It's not going back to the drawing board again and starting that process again, which we have done in the past. But the perception of that approach is it's it's a lot more work at that first stage. And it, it's... Um, and a good example of where that's worked is the Thames Estuary 2100 project, where they have looked at lots of different uh, sea level rise scenarios and planned for different scenarios. Um, but I think we need to look at ways of making it easier, more possible to take that approach to smaller schemes, mm. where currently it might feel a bit disproportionate to do that, just to plan something that um, is, is for less investment. So um, I think if we can make it easier to use the, what we're learning from Thames Estuary um, and embed a process that's a bit simpler, then I think we can manage the uncertainties by doing that. And how, how receptive do you think the clients are in this space at the moment? How would you characterise that? Is it, you know, do you have faith that learning from one big project scheme like TE2100 will give you enough? Or, or is it actually there's a little bit of flexibility needed on the client side as well to arm themselves for the adapt adaptation and flexibility that's needed? I think there is an appreciation of the challenge and I think most clients want to do the right thing. Um, I think there's perhaps a nervousness as with anything that's relatively new and a lot of, a lot of this is public funding and there's obviously the right challenge of um, making it the most efficient and the best best value for that public purse. So there might be a perception that putting extra work in is actually not appropriate. Um, and I think we need to build up that confidence of how it does save in the long term to help people to be able to be confident in that space. Um, and I think the other point is um, the resources required is is restricted, especially in, in some of these um, government bodies. And so I think you have to be sympathetic that if if there is a struggle to carry on with the with the current approach, to embrace a new approach that's going to be more involved, um, is just stretching that already stretched resource. So um, so I think I, I think this is where the industry can help with making it seem um, more simple and also that there is confidence in it. You know, we can provide that messaging through that. Um, let me be, build on what you just said, uh, Fiona. Um, in terms of uh, gathering the data and the evidence. I mean, infrastructure is a long life cycle. Uh, we need to be able to uh, make decisions based on evidence to build a better business case, but also to operate more efficiently in infrastructure in the long term. So, um, and then going back to how do you design for uncertainty, uh, designers can embed um, technology, uh, so sensors, for example, um, in their design, ensure that they are there and they are used throughout the life, operational life of the infrastructure. So then we can make the timely decisions and we can support managed uh, adaptation pathways. We can um, retrofit the infrastructure uh, based on evidence and uh, not just rely on maintenance regimes. And I think there's an interesting point there, maybe not related to the uncertainty of climate change, but just other uncertainties. A, a bugbear of mine in, in the flood world is 
we often have a lack of data for the hydrology and hydraulic assessments, and we make our best estimates based on the data that we've got. But I think there could be more investment in the data to reduce that level of uncertainty. And I think this links back to the um, decarbonisation because sometimes quite a relatively small amount of investment in putting in a new gauge at the beginning of a project, these things take years to develop, can actually reduce the uncertainty and maybe actually reduce the freeboard that you've put on for that uncertainty to actually reduce the carbon of what you end up building. And I think we don't think about investing in that data and that assessment enough to be able to justify. And I think we, every stage adds un, uh, freeboard for uncertainty and you don't realise how much that actually means when, it talk, when you end up with a wall height or, or whatever. And the carbon embedded in that, I think we really seriously need to look at properly investing in the original calculations and the data that goes into that. I mean, that's an interesting, I guess, challenge, quandary for any practicing civil engineers is to understand when they've got enough data or they haven't got enough data. Um, we'll always want more data. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, how, how do you how do you make that call? How do you how do you know when you need to ask for more? I think I think there is a sort of it's not an either or. Let's go ahead with the project based on our assumptions of what we can make now. But let's add to that data. And it's a bit like nobody wants to reassess something in case it has to change because that's, um, that's a bit painful. But if we're going to save carbon at the end of the day, it's worth it. Or if we're going to save money at the end of the day, it's that redoing the work of the, in the design side is actually small compared to what you're saving on the ground at the end. So we just have to be open to re look back at some of the assumptions we made once that more data comes in but you don't necessarily want to stop and wait until you've got that extra data you kind of want to do it alongside this past 2080 does bring that in doesn't it? i'm looking at lewis now you know that you know the 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 uh, there's the, the, the graph that sort of you know, makes it very clear that you can start a, a project with limited data mm. yeah but you can you know, as but that's a place where you've got maximum ability to impact the amount of carbon that you might put into the project. And there's just that, that curve, isn't there, which really kind of brings home the, the point that there's there's no you can't you can't start thinking early enough about yeah, using that, your data. That curve makes its way into many documents, doesn't it? And then that, that curve originated from a diminishing ability to reduce cost the later you think about it in a project. But it's just the same for carbon. Yeah. Biggest decisions, most most impactful decisions can be made up front. That's when you make the most difference, but that's when you've got the least accuracy uh, and the least certainty. And the point of that is to say that we're not trying to say that you should wait, therefore, until you're quite certain, because you won't be able to make much of a difference. You have to take the decision earlier on, but make your assumptions clear. Uh, and that's, again, it just comes back to the same same principle as cost, you know. Just coming back to another Fiona's points around... Um, how do you, you know, how do you know? There's limited capacity to in some of these in some of these areas to sort of, you know, to really understand the the challenges in terms of designing the extra for for resilience. I'm just sort of asking you to put your put your day job hat on a little bit here and and sort of from, from you know what at the sharp end you're at in terms of sort of trying to deliver enable infrastructure projects which maybe could have lower carbon, could be more resilient. But you know how 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 can we as civil engineering professionals help you with your day job hat on. Well, the, the challenge now is, in, as we've talked about earlier, is embedding documents and, and processes like PAS 2080 
uh, and using those tools. And so one thing that the institution can do is uh, make that document readily available, make sure that members are aware of it, make sure that there's, there's guides as to how that can be applied. Let's get some good case studies of how, how others have used it, because that's always helpful. Whenever you're, you're grappling with an issue, if you can see, well, somebody with something similar was able to do it, was able to apply it, and applied it in this particular way, and this was the outcome, that will then help uh, engineers then to, to take that into their own project. So, so I think there's a, a huge role for, for ICE to uh, produce that knowledge, to share that knowledge, so that our engineers are, are better equipped then to, to use this, because this is new, carbon counting is new, but actually, as we talked about earlier, the, the fundamental of justifying the scheme isn't new. We're just counting it in a slightly different way. Our focus has changed on the on the, what we know is causing the harm. So, so we have the skills in terms of actually assessing projects. We just need the, that focus on uh, on carbon to be very carbon conscious and, and to be focused on it and to understand how to how to assess it. It's probably worth pointing out that there are quite a lot of good case studies and new guidance for the PAS documents. So I think that something like 150 uh, applications came in from all different stakeholders, different uh, parts of uh, points in the process. Uh, and uh, and uh, there are several good case studies in there, well, scores of them, I'm not, I haven't counted them. But uh, so that's definitely something to look at. You know, if people are looking at PAS 2080, make sure you download the guidance document and have a look at these case studies. Because like you say, it's, it's uh, much more easy to conceptualize when you can put a, a project to it and really understand how people have addressed it. And the other big change between the previous version of PAS is this is now freely available. It was a conscious decision in order to get the uptake. Yeah. The, the document itself and the guidance are freely available and, and we want to encourage organisations to, to adopt this and to use it because we recognise that it is a very good tool. That's right. I mean, the previous one was only something like 150 quid, but still a block sadly that yeah. was a barrier yeah. to, on a multi-million pound project. They couldn't mm -hmm. get someone to download the 150 pound uh, yeah. standard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now it is free, as you say, yeah. which, is, which is very good. Yeah. It's also very important to understand um, the trade-offs that you might find uh, in solutions that are low carbon that might though not be the most resilient resilient options. Um, so I think it's um, in disseminating, collating and disseminating case studies, I think it's important to find those case studies that actually are in the sweet spots of delivering sustainability, low carbon solutions that are resi resilient and also you know, the best social impact. So we need to be as sweet spots of many different outcomes to be delivered by the infrastructure. Mm. And um, those case studies are not uh, very common, yeah. I should say. Um, but so there is, again, you know, a need to find them and disseminate them and explain what the trade-offs are, because that's not going to be one, one solution that ticks all the boxes. Yeah. Mm. I think well, one of the things about looking about infrastructure that's bringing a lot of multi-benefits is the way we're, or certainly in the UK, set up for funding of these infrastructure is it's quite siloed. And I think if we're serious to look at, uh, and we are, we're looking at um, the interdependencies of different systems and addressing so many different challenges that we've got. But if I think in the world of resilience, we need to be looking at using infrastructure, say it's quite simple, but you know, if a road is being built, could that also be a flood defense? You know, but at the moment we are a blocker to that is you are a road project or you're a flood defense project and our access to that funding from ultimately the same pot is uh, through a different process. Yeah. 
and the processors aren't able to actually draw that in to pool money and get better value and better outcomes for the public purse. So I, I think it's starting things like that that we're starting to recognise as being blockers. Um, and I think the partnership working that we're seeing happening around is a good step towards that. But I think the sectors are still quite far away from each other. But, but on that, uh, you know, we are starting to see that even the use of the term blue-green. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we're starting to break down some of those silo approach where, yeah, we are taking forward a flood defence scheme. We're making space for water. That space is in an urban area. Let's do something interesting in that and let's make it into a green space because of that, the added benefit. So I think that's a good example where we need to to do exactly what you say, not just be saying we're here just to, to, to reduce flood damage. We can actually have a solution that might actually give other benefits. And, and as you say, then that gives the opportunity then to draw down money from other, other pots and might actually mean that certain types of schemes, which if you just looked at them from a flood point of view or from a, a landscaping point of view, might not be viable, but pulling together those different strands might actually help some projects to, to be viable and to be funded. Yeah, and I think there's some great documentation that's come out. And I think the Scottish Government was one area where it's around placemaking mm-hmm. and um, and the how placemaking is is looking at all of these effects when designing particularly our urban infrastructure Mm -hmm. and i know that's one of the um knowledge networks that is supporting all of the work that the ICE are doing because we as an institution needs to also make sure that we're cross-cutting the different areas Mm -hmm. that that interacts with so we're trying to look at it in a far more placemaking approach savina bringing i guess your your you know, very global role with the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure. Is is there is there is is there one key priority for us as 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 the ICE as civil engineers that, that we really need to take away and embed into our day to day activities? Um I think um everyone um in my day job, everyone is talking about capacity building. Capacity building not just for engineers, but also for engineers to kind of uh, help educate policymakers and uh, investors in what the solutions might be and kind of boost their confidence in choosing certain projects to decide to invest in uh, in uh, in other projects that might be the type of projects that we've discussed so far in this uh, in this uh, podcast so capacity building within the profession which is what IC is doing um, and uh, giving uh, giving the IC members, the not the deep tactical knowledge about resilience, but the general concept or the key concepts that they should be um, aware of and key concept on decarbonization and other areas so that they can all kind of know and understand each other when we talk and when we talk to other disciplines outside civil engineering, but then also educating or influencing outwards, influencing the policymakers, educating the public, explaining what the risks are in a way that um, is, um, yeah, so kind of uh, builds on our technical expertise, gives that confidence as credible professionals. Um, And we, um, we, actually improve the way perhaps we communicate with the public and, uh, and policymakers and we learn how to um, be better storytellers uh, about the solutions that we, we develop. And on that point about uh, increasing awareness, 
that's really what's driving our uh, requirement to have certain topics of CPD mandated within the institution where we do recognise that in and of ourselves we might not gain an awareness of certain topics <clears throat> uh, and we're, we're saying here's a list of, of CPD that as a practising civil engineer or infrastructure engineer uh, you need to have an awareness of this so so that's really what's behind that to, to make sure the point that you're actually making that, that uh, civil engineers and professionals are aware of, of some of those topics. I, I see this um, journey we're going with resilience very similar to the health and safety journey that we've been on where it's not left to specialists but it's actually embedded everybody. into in everybody yeah. and yes you're not going to have everyone being able to do hydraulic modeling or whatever mm -hmm. it might be but everyone appreciating how their um, work they do impacts on resilience or is impacted by some of the climate yeah. ch um, challenges that we're facing. And yeah, uh, making it mandated as part of the CPD is a way of embedding that. And, and we need to help maybe some of the, the employer organisations appreciate that change and build that into how the, the next generation's coming through yeah. the industry. Well, those are the perfect messages to just remind everyone. Thank you for listening. We, we have plenty more about this topic, more podcasts, more Tech Talk videos and other resources on the IC Knowledge Hub around all of those CPD topics we've mentioned. So um, thank you hugely to our guests today, David, Lewis, Fiona and Savina. Um, and for, thank you for sharing your thoughts. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. This has been an ICE podcast. Please join us for the next one. Goodbye.